there is something about space, and maybe you already sort of experience it without knowing, but perhaps a space like this, in a different way, can awake our senses to God with us and for us. And so when we come together in this place, we're always coming as the people of God, being reminded of God with us. And maybe in a way that we just haven't had the opportunity before as a community, we, we have this unique reminder of the grandness of God in our midst. And so there's, there's sort of an aesthetic quality to worshiping here that it's just, I'm really glad for. We did well in Germania, and I think we'll do well here. So our, our teaching this summer... This is the only time you're going to hear me preach this summer because over July and August is a collection of different people from the St. Clair community who are going to be teaching our way through the summer, looking at the life of Moses. Over the last two summers now, we've taken the summer as an opportunity to uh, have a more thematic approach to our teaching series over the summer. And we've looked at the genre of the wisdom literature of scripture, the Psalms and the Proverbs and a bunch of those books over the last two summers. This summer, we're following the life of a character in scripture, and that is Moses. It's going to take us over a few different books of the Bible, but we purpose, on purpose, are spending time in the Old Testament, not just to sort of like buff up our knowledge of scripture, but because we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed, that the whole thing from starting to end, the grand arc of the story is pointing to Jesus. And I think as we go through these weeks, you will see hints and glimpses of the very life of Jesus being played out and shown in the life of God's people and in the life of Moses We look to Scripture, and we look to the Old Testament to teach us about who God is, and we hold on to it as this authoritative revelation of God. Jesus himself is the living word. He is the one who's alive and active, and he brings the words of Scripture to life, and we believe that when we read and engage with Scripture, we're able to hear the voice of Jesus through the Spirit. So we're going to journey through the life of Moses, and we're going to have sort of eyes to see and hopefully ears to hear Jesus and his voice and the arc of this story of the people of God. Moses may come, I may do this a few times to help myself out. (laughs) Thanks. Moses probably is familiar for a lot of us. You don't even have to be a churchy person to have some sense of who Moses is. As I was thinking about Moses this week, I don't know why I did this, but I, uh, I chose to have Bob Marley and Exodus as my soundtrack as I was just working through this. So it's probably still in my head a little bit right now. Uh, but Moses, where we find ourselves at the beginning of Exodus, is 400 years from the end of the book of Genesis. And if you know the book, the Genesis, the story of God's people, you have Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat who go to Egypt, and eventually it's Joseph 
And his dad and his brothers, all 70 people of that family who migrate to Egypt and now call Egypt home. That's where we find ourselves picking up in the story of Moses. Exodus is the first book where we see the word salvation appear, that God has come as a rescue for his people. It's also the first book where you see a song of worship appear. It's what the, God's people do as they emerge the, out, out the other side of the parting of the sea, as they praise God. Moses actually has a lot of similarities to the life of Jesus. I'll, I'll highlight some of them for us now. Both Moses and Jesus, they were both in a way saved at birth. There was, was this genocide of firstborns being killed. And both Moses and Jesus were saved from that. They both in their life fasted for 40 days. Both had power over the sea. Both fed a multitude of people. At one point in each of Jesus and Moses' lives, they both had radiant faces. Both were discredited in their hometown. Both had 70 helpers. Both reappeared after death. And there's a, the list goes on. But Jesus, when he comes and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, and says, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Jesus is saying, you know about Moses, God's people. I am Moses, and everything Moses couldn't be for you, I am the fulfillment of that law that was given to you so long ago. And so there is this really close interwoven tie between who Moses is and what that sort of leads us to and what we see in Jesus. Okay. We, you may have noticed we actually haven't read the scripture yet, which is normally what we do before we sort of start to unpack it together. And in a minute, I'm going to have Nathan Kirk read the scripture for us. But there's something different that I want us to do together in how we engage with it. So let me kind of give us a bit of a warm-up with that. And that is to say, sometimes the stories in scripture, they're familiar, familiar to the point where we brush them off or we treat it with contempt because we think we know it. And we want to, I'm asking us to listen to the story of chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus today, this introduction to Moses, that perhaps we could hear it with fresh eyes, or well, if you can hear it with your eyes, you're better than me. Oh, man. I'm feeling the sweat already. But we want to be able to hear the story and listen for God's voice in what is sort of going to be an adapted group exercise of Alexio Divina, a spiritual divine reading of scripture. That is where instead of approaching the text with a kind of microscope to say, okay, how do we uh, decipher and pick apart the meaning of every little piece, which is a necessary and good task to do Engaging God's word. As a group this morning, we're going to hear the word read for us. And maybe in a way, it's almost like you just let it kind of wash over you. And you're just listening with a curiosity, maybe a questioning, sort of a, almost with the landscape of your mind, kind of looking and imagining the scene before you. 
or perhaps putting yourself in the shoes of one of the characters and thinking about what would that actually feel like emotionally to be in the midst of that what is it that you would expect of, of God in that moment? It's, it's trying to engage a scripture sort of on an experiential level and trusting that God will speak. So I, I'll offer us a couple questions that are a good sort of foundation for approaching any part of scripture, whether you're reading it as a sort of a Lexio style or you're reading it to do an exegesis. There are four questions that we can pretty much always keep coming back to. Some may be more obvious than others when we engage with scripture. But to ask the questions with any text to say, who is God? What has he done? Who am I? And what am I to do? So as we engage with scripture, we can ask and say, what is this telling me about the nature of who God is? What are the characteristics of God that you see play out, perhaps in this passage of chapters 1 and 2? That's, that's doing theology work. Theology is just the, the study of who God is, and it's asking the question of, what is God like? And then to say, what has he done? And that's sort of the Christological, the Christ-centered point of saying, well, what what then, how has God enacted his character in the people in Scripture or in this event? How do we see the character of God actually play out? And ultimately, how do we see it clearest in Jesus? And then who am I? That's sort of an ecclesiological uh, thought in terms of who has God made us to be as a people? What is my identity? How do you see maybe the identity of a character in Scripture play out that can relate to me? And what do I do is the missiology of then how then shall we live? In a way, Scripture is not all created equal. And I don't mean that in a heretical sense. I just mean that some parts of Scripture carry more weight than others. We hold it all to be true, all to be authoritative. But some parts are simply describing an event that gives us a picture into what God is like. It is not always assuming to be prescripted for our life. Some parts of Scripture are simply describing what God is like and what we're like as people. And in some parts of Scripture, you have a prescription. It's giving us an instruction of how then we should live. And we just want to have that lens to bring to Scripture in whatever reading, but I'm offering this as sort of a starting point that could carry us through the summer as we engage with this story of Moses. So I'm going to ask, Nate Kirk is going to read this for us. This is where you can sit, and we already sing, but you can relax. If it's helpful, you can close your eyes and just imagine the story that's being told. The, screen, the words will be on the screen, so you can read along as much as helpful, or if you have your own readable version in front of you, you can do that. And now here's my big ask that we don't normally do at St. Clair. When we're done hearing the reading, we're going to turn to one another, <sighs> And we're simply going to share with maybe two or three other people, hey, here's one thing I noticed. Or here's a question that I had. Or I've heard that before, but I never thought it about this way. You in no way need to 
offer sort of an answer or an explanation or sort of this, your, your detailed interpretation of something that you're hearing. You can simply just sound back to the people next to you, here's something I noticed in that story, or this made me think about God in this way, or I wonder what this would have been like for this person. You can fill in those blanks. After Nate's read, we're going to take some time to do that together. Okay? Thanks, Nate. Yeah. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali. Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, 
Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you the ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up, and came to their rescue, and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man, who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Thanks, Nate. That wasn't fair to do to you. You're on summer break, you're a teacher. (laughs) So here's my big ask, is that you turn to three or four other people and you would just simply share something you noticed of the text. You could be so bold to say, whoa, maybe I heard God's voice say this, but it could simply just be an observation. Um, uh, Let me encourage you that... uh, to take advantage of this summer narrative of the life of Moses, to just on your own time engage with Scripture. And when I say engage with Scripture, I don't mean feel the obligation of reading chapters upon chapters every day. It might be as simple as you're doing the gardening, you're washing dishes, you're putting away laundry. This is when some of the times I'll do these things, is I'll just listen to the Bible on audio. I'm just, I'm just hearing the narrative. I'm, I'm just getting familiar with it in a different way. Um, or even, uh, this has happened a few times over the last couple of months, is where uh, a bunch of St. Clair people have gathered together in a living room, and they've just, in turn, have read Scripture out loud to one another and just went through the Gospel of John. These things are a good practice. They help us 
engage with Scripture. And maybe in a unique way, you begin to hear the voice of God through the voice of someone else. So this is probably the only chance in the summer teaching there would, there would be a, a, such a condensed version of just two chapters that we could do that. We're going to start spanning much bigger sections um, across Exodus and Numbers, and it's, we're going to cover a lot more territory with uh, the life of Moses. And I'm excited that we, it's a diversity of voices in our community that's going to lead us through that, bringing their perspectives to the text. But would you engage with the text just yourself? Um, I think it helps actually bring a posture a readiness to hear and to learn, to listen when we gather together on a Sunday. Often the summertime can feel like this scrambled, scattered, everything's out of whack and we long for it because we just want to break free and get out of the city and just be released from a concrete jungle. But yet you can get to August and just you feel like it's this whirlwind where every week is different and perhaps, perhaps if you're able, the Sunday gathering can be a, a weekly rhythm for us in the summer and just following the life of Moses and learning what that teaches us about Jesus. You probably had uh, a lot of observations or together certainly had, we've had a lot more than we would have time for even in a summer's worth of teaching. Let me offer just a couple of my own observations, one of which is uh, what I would um, give as, I think this is what God may be saying for some of us today and what some of us need to hear. One is in chapter one, verse seven, uh, there was uh, the description where it says, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. It's like, how many times can you say there's a lot of Israelites? Like, that's, there's a lot of multiplication going on. But some of those words and even that phrasing plays out kind of similarly to, and I don't know if you kind of caught this, Genesis 1, 28, you know, where God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And now we have God's people who are filling Egypt. They're living in to being God's people, what he's made them to do. But as we'll learn, it doesn't take very long for them to, uh, well, pretty much screw the whole thing up. <laughs> you get a little moment where you're like, oh, they're doing that thing they're created for, what God has made them to flourish in, and then it, it goes wrong pretty quick. And did you catch this in chapter 2, verse 12, when it's describing the scene of Moses where he's encountering one of his own people being mistreated. And it says, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The book of Exodus and the first five books of Scripture, the Torah, are Moses is the one who is credited as being the author of those books. And so it's fair to assume that we're getting a description of what happened with Moses right now that is from Moses himself. He's like, I think you need to know, and maybe this is his sort of confession. He's like, I knew 100% that what I was about to do was wrong. He's looking this way and that. He's trying to cover his tracks before he's even done the deed. 
And this is, this is Moses. This is hero of the faith. And he's scheming and plotting on how to cover his sin. And it's not just like a passing forgettable sin. He, he killed another man. This is our hero of the faith, Moses, a murderer. And you could even say, reading into this context, he's, he's, it's first degree. It's premeditated. This would, he would not have an out in the court of law. Phil could correct me if I'm wrong on that. Moses is full on guilty, like big time guilty. This is maybe some of the early hints where you see, oh, maybe things aren't going quite how they're supposed to go for the people of God. That it's not just they've been put under a difficult circumstance, but they're actually ones who are broken in the midst of a broken circumstance. And Moses is exemplifying that for us as much as anyone. And so a bit of what I just want to do right now is to say, be prepared to be disappointed as we go through the life of Moses. Sometimes we can hear and see the life of people in Scripture whose examples in many respects are something to inspire to, but they themselves can never be the hero because they're just as broken and as messed up as us. And the theme of Exodus is that God has come, he's holding up his end of the bargain of this covenant with his people. He's come as a rescue for them because he himself is faithful, not because God's people are faithful. It becomes predictable over and over and over again. Moses and his people screw this thing up at so many turns. And you think, man, why does God just let them go? Can they seriously get this right? Are they really of any use? And when we read the story from a certain distance, you'll see things along the way that, and if you know the narrative already, it's easy to look and say, wow, Isn't that just idiotic? Like, who would build, like, a golden calf? Like, there are just things that seem so obvious that perhaps you could say are really dumb that are terribly sinful, yet God's people still willfully choose to do it. When I look at my life, I don't have to look very far to see dumb and willfully regrettable decisions. Things that in the moment, I'm looking around and saying, I'm weighing the cost, saying, basically calculating my head, can I get away with this? Will someone else notice? Will there be repercussions with God? How can I shortcut my way through stuff to, in essence, just get what I want? I am guilty of that. If you have children, I'm sure you've seen that look on their face where they are looking to see, is anyone watching right now, thinking no one is, and then doing the devious thing 
and perhaps even being deceitful and trying to cover their tracks. Like if you're a parent, you observe this. I see this in my dog. My dog does something wrong, and I say, Beyonce, that, which is our dog's name. <laughs> and before she, the tail immediately drops, and her posture changes. Like a dog, I don't understand this, but a dog somehow understands their wrongfulness and their sin. I t- <laughs> That's another theology for another day. But I think we're all lumped into this thing where we have a tendency to be broken to the point where we can't escape it, to the point where we can't actually rescue ourselves. And the beauty that we see in the story of Moses and with his people is that God has done for them what they could not do for themselves. And the word that I want to offer us is that Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. That is the good news of God coming near in our life because he remains faithful even as we are faithless. And if you have personally maybe disqualified yourself to think, oh, no, no, but Dave, you don't understand. I did this thing and this happened and I, it's forever marked me. It's forever marred me. I won't be the same. I don't think I can trust God. I don't think I can trust people. God is not surprised by your bad choice. He was not shocked when you, maybe like Moses, hid and ran when you were exposed in that bad choice. God remains faithful. That is who God is. That is what we see with God and his people that's what we get to celebrate. Let me read you this scripture. From, it's from the New Testament, from Titus. And for some of us, maybe it is a passage. We just need to, in a sense, let it wash over us and just let these words be made real in our life and to trust them again and to hear God's voice speak this to us, not in a generality for everyone to hear, but with a very personal lens on you and where you find yourself today. I'll read this for us, and then Marseille is going to lead us through communion together this morning. This is Titus 3, verse 3 to 8. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness of, of the, and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things 
so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to celebrate and give thanks and taking communion together. God, I give you thanks for the mystery that nothing comes as a surprise to you. I give you thanks that you see my life plain as an open book and you are not threatened or scared or repulsed by any of my wrongdoings. God, I give you thanks that you give up your son, Jesus, who is our rescue, who took on just the, the vile nature that just lives out in our life. We thank you that Jesus took that on himself undeservingly, that we could know your faithfulness to us, that you are for us and that you are with us. Oh God, just as Moses before you said, I, God, I can't go unless your presence goes with me. I, I need you with me. God, I ask this morning that we would know your presence, your renewal and the washing of rebirth, that we would have a renewed hope where we've lost hope, that we would have joy where that's been crushed or that's been pressed down. God, would new life come to the surface in us today? We trust your faithfulness. We confess our own unfaithfulness and we receive the forgiveness of our sins. We give you thanks, God. Amen.